This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Hawaii discussing a kidnapping and murder that reveals a major Hawaii crime ring. Then, we'll talk about two in-flight decompression stories. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Aloha State. So anytime we're covering Hawaii, there's always a lot of Googling on how to pronounce words. I promise I looked up all of these, but I'm going to butcher some anyway, because I just don't have those. Well, Hawaii has very native. Right. I don't have those. Names, places, towns. And even if you think you're pronouncing it right, Right. that's not. We're in Arkansas. (laughs) Exactly. We have towns called Possum Trot. (laughs) That's true. And I can pronounce that. So let's go to. Oahu. You nailed it. Well, I hope so. I have them all on my tabs in order. So so it's the third largest of the Hawaii Islands, of the Hawaiian Islands, and one of the most popular tourist destinations. I would love to be there right now, or Monday when it's snowy. So Johnny Frazier went to King Intermediate and then attended Castle High School, but he didn't graduate. He was 5'7 and weighed around 150 pounds. He loved the ocean, shoreline fishing, and boogie boarding. He loved to work on cars, and then he got into street racing and outlaw racing. He sounds hot. <laughs> how tall is he? 5'7". Oh. 5'7". That's how tall you are. Yeah, I'm 5'7". I can go out with you. <laughs> you just had a baby, though. <laughs> well, he loved playing football, and he had played Pop Warner football. And was said to have a good arm, but he didn't do well enough academically in high school to turn out for the team. He also loved dogs, especially his pit bull Nala, who was said to be his world. Love a dog guy. So his family described him as quiet and respectful. His best friend was named Caleb Miski, and they had been close since their childhood on Oahu. They shared an apartment together with their girlfriends in Waipahu, Hawaii, for most of 2014 and shared a love of cars. They even founded a racing club called Mad Motor Industries. I don't know much about the racing scene. That sounds fun. Yeah, it does. You don't hear about that too often. I hear them racing down. I I guess I don't, I wouldn't have thought that Hawaii had a big racing scene. Maybe that's ignorant of me to assume. In November of 2014, Caleb's father, Michael Miski Jr., blamed 19-year-old Johnny for stealing his gold Rolex watch. So Johnny told a family member that he and Caleb were both involved in stealing it because they planned on pawning it and splitting money. But when they were caught, Johnny took the full blame and he didn't rat out Caleb. On the morning of November 13, 2014, Johnny was beaten by several men allegedly acting on Mike's orders for stealing his watch. This is his son's best friend. This is like some Sopranos shit. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you stole, he stole a watch. He's a 19-year-old kid. I don't know. This seems extreme. How much are Rolexes worth? I truly don't even know. Um, a shitload. Like thousands? Thousands and thousands. Okay. Hmm. Not like a thousand, like 20, 30, Oh, 50, wow, 000. really? Some of them. See, like I would you get like know. an older one, like a Submariner? That is a lot. Those can be very expensive. I dated a guy once, and for his birthday, I was going to buy him a Rolex from the year he was born. And then I looked at the price. And you sold a kidney. (laughs) I looked at the price, and I was like, I'll get you a cake from Kroger instead. (laughs) And some nudes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Who doesn't love birthday cake and nudes? That's hilarious. Yeah. Mike's younger brother, John, and employee, Kalana, were sent by Mike to get the watch back. They met John at Kaneohe District Park, where they demanded the watch using force. These are grown men against a 19-year-old. 
So Johnny was able to get back into his car and flee, and then he reported this to the police. So as you can imagine, this created a ton of tension between Johnny and Mike, but somehow he and Caleb remained best friends. Like, oh, remember that time my dad tried to get his friends to beat you to death? Oh, shit. (laughs) But a year later, one night in November of 2015, Johnny and Caleb were speeding in Caleb's Honda when they collided with a pickup truck. The car was completely totaled, and they were transported from the scene in critical condition. At the hospital, there was tension between their families. The police report said that Caleb was the one behind the wheel. I mean, it was his Honda, but his father, Mike, refused to believe it. He insisted Johnny was driving and blamed Johnny for the crash and for Caleb's death. So it's really odd because there are multiple reports by first responders saying that Caleb was trapped behind the steering wheel in the driver's seat. Yeah, you can't switch bodies. He had to be extracted from the vehicle. Yeah. But Mike was in denial. He was like, no. It was Johnny. He just would not believe Caleb caused the wreck. Well, Johnny recovered from the crash, but Caleb did not. He died from his injury several months later in March. Yeah, the crash was in November. He died in the hospital in March of the next year. So was he just in the hospital this whole time? Mm -hmm. And Oh, God, that's terrible. He left behind a wife named Delia and a three-month-old daughter. Caleb was Mike's only child, and he was absolutely devastated. So Johnny survived, but he was affected by Caleb's death. Mike wouldn't even allow him to attend the funeral because he blamed him. Oh my gosh. Johnny became withdrawn, lost interest in his hobbies. But by the summer, he was getting a little better, and by then he and his girlfriend Ashley were expecting a child. At this point, it seemed like Mike was kind of coming around and softening to Johnny. And Johnny thought Mike was trying to reconcile things, and he even provided him with a car to use, which is very generous. Yeah. In July, Mike invited Johnny and his girlfriend to stay with Caleb's widow, Delia, at his expense. I'm assuming she was okay with this. They had been roommates before, but he was paying everyone's rent. So it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course, that's great. Johnny's Aunt Jean told him he was being naive and that he was, he was being set up by Mike. On the morning of July 30th, 2016, Johnny's girlfriend Ashley and Delia went out for a spa day about 35 miles away from their apartment. Ashley planned on meeting Johnny later that day, but he never showed up. He wouldn't return her calls or her texts, and that night they reported him missing to the Honolulu Police Department. They also reported the car he was using, which was a 94 Honda Civic. He was last seen approximately 9.30 a.m. on July 30th. So on August 7th, the Honda Civic was discovered in the vicinity and it had been secured and unattended. No clues were left in the car. In early August, Johnny's Aunt Jean got a call from an acquaintance who knew people on the streets. And they told her that they heard Johnny was killed and disposed of in the ocean. Not disposed. Yeah. There was no proof, though, so no one knew if the rumors were true. This was just kind of the chatter on the streets. Four months later, still no Johnny. Then an anonymous source told an FBI agent that he had been at a residence in Kalihi when he saw Johnny bound to a lawn chair with plastic ties and duct tape. No. It gets worse. No. He said Johnny was repeatedly kicked in the head (gasps) and then burned with a torch all over his body. (gasps) He provided the FBI with reliable information for around a month, and they were able to corroborate records of social media details, including telephone records, criminal history records, social media, and so on. And this confidential source led them to believe that Johnny was kidnapped as part of a murder for hire directed by Mike. The source was confiding in the FBI because he was he feared his own safety. He was one of Mike's associates, and he thought he was going to get killed. Mm-hmm. The affidavits never revealed the source's identity, but somehow word got out that 23-year-old James Borling Salis Salis was the informant. 
So 41-year-old Mike could appear intimidating. He was six feet tall with dark eyes, a square jaw, prominent cheekbones, and broad shoulders. He was the owner of a termite and pest control company, nightclub, and commercial fishing companies. He had residential properties, including one in the affluent neighborhood of Portlock, where he was building a cliffside mansion with an oceanfront infinity pool and views of Diamond Head. In Hawaii, that's millions, millions and millions and millions, like a cliffside mansion. So he had several businesses, and he obviously made good money, but it didn't really add up because everything he had was too extravagant for what he was doing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. termite businesses and stuff like, yeah, you can make good money, but a cliffside mansion. Yeah. This sounds like some mob shit. Yeah. And like he had the Rolex, everything like that. So there were suspicions he had another source of income. And there was chatter that the boats in his fishing companies didn't seem to unload much, much fish, speculating he was importing something other than seafood. People crossed People who crossed Mike got to see his extreme anger. He would also employ violent men who had once been in prison. So it turns out he did have a side hustle. He was a drug kingpin and had plenty of people to do his bidding for him. He had an entire gang, essentially. So James, who witnessed Johnny getting beaten, was an associate of Mike's and knew all about the shady stuff he was doing. In December of 2019, which was three years after his meetings with the FBI, he was held at the Oahu Community Correctional Center for violating his parole, and there he was beaten and left for dead by a group of inmates. He died the following month, so his family thinks that it was because he snitched and these inmates were Mike's associates too somehow. They get to everybody. Mm -hmm. They really do. So anyway, investigators thought Mike got his associates Jacob Smith, Lance Lee Bermudez, and several others to act it out. And when Jacob was arrested, he was quick to agree to a plea deal in exchange for information. Jacob was a trained martial artist and admitted to being paid to assault people when requested by Mike. So after Johnny was kidnapped, Jacob and Lance duct tape and zip tied John into a chair, repeatedly kicked him in the head, and used a propane gas torch to burn him. James, the informant, witnessed all this and he said that he saw a tripod set up with an iPhone on it as if they were recording everything, you know. And he was so disturbed he left the house at that point. He returned a few days later and Jacob and Lance were trying to show James the video of the torture because they all had it on their phones. And he said during this visit, he saw Lance tending to a large pot on the stove with a very large bone sticking out. No. And he believed it to be human. No. No, no, no. So we know James was beaten to death in prison, but when he was originally being interviewed by investigators, and this is so sad to me. He attempted to hide in the corner of the interview room, then crawled into the fetal position under the desk in the room and was hysterical. Well, I think it was just he was so scared that yeah, snitching was going to get this. He knew what happened yeah. to people that crossed Mike, and he's like, I'm dead. So he was just freaking out. Well, and it's not even the fact that you're dead, is you're about to be tortured. tortured. Exactly, exactly. Like a shot to the head compared to being. Don't uh, put a blowtorch to my skin, please. Oh my God, I know. I burnt my neck once with a curling iron. Mm. Uh uh-uh. uh. I can't even imagine. No. no. And his grandma said that after James witnessed Johnny's torture, he was depressed and despondent, and he even attempted suicide after. That's when he told his grandma everything. And she's the one who prompted him to tell authorities. And he ended up telling authorities and everything and then coming back later saying, no, I didn't tell you any of that. That wasn't true. It, like, panicked. So, obviously, he knew what was going to come of it, you know. It sucks. And they're supposed to protect him, you know. If you witnessed something and it was like, go to prison or become state's evidence and risk... Mm-hmm. Because these wise guys, yeah, 
they go above and beyond. Yeah. They have people every fucking where. Yeah. Would you rat? I would rather go to prison. Me and, too. Um, than have to look over torture. my shoulder. And also, now I'm, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. I think he was just freaking out. And I mean, he got beaten to death in prison, so. Fuck. I know. According to the affidavit, his grandmother said that James told her Mike agreed to pay Jacob $50,000 to kill Johnny, make him suffer, and record it all on video. So because of James's information, the FBI obtained court approval for a PIN register trap and trace for a cell phone known to be used by Mike. This allowed law enforcement agencies to collect, record, and analyze caller information. It recorded approximately 64 texts and two voice calls to a phone used by Jacob between July 29th and 31st, the period which Johnny disappeared. Investigators also got warrants to seize other phones used by Jacob and Lance, and warrants to search the house and vehicles, along with personal items including a backpack seized from one of the vehicles. During the search of the house, nearly five months later, Agents seized a number of items, including a five-inch small rib bone, drain, oh. yeah, sink drain pipes from the master bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, and half bath, a trace of unknown hair, dryer lint trap, a zip tie, folding chair, and sections of drywall. They used luminol spray and found what they believed to be blood in the bathroom, but forensic tests for some reason weren't able to identify it. They said it lacked interpretable DNA like add DNA too right. low for testing. The indictment alleges that Mike purchased a 37 and a half foot Boston whaler, which is a boat named painkiller valued at $450,000, which was likely used to dispose of Johnny's body at sea. So bought a whole freaking boat for this. <sighs> yeah. Your story's given. I, I know. Another, I it's <laughs> In July 2020, after a raid of Mike's home, a federal judge in Honolulu unsealed a 22-count racketeering indictment charging him and 10 co-defendants with several crimes, citing wiretaps, law enforcement surveillance, grand jury testimony from dozens of witnesses, and prosecutors would go on to allege that since at least the late 1990s, Mike had directed a syndicate a syndicate that dealt in robbery and extortion and played a major role in Oahu's drug trade. So, like, he was the kingpin of the drug scene there, basically. He used his offices as a headquarters and front for what they did and dubbed it Miski Enterprise. He was able to hide all of this from authorities well until Caleb died, but then his grief made him sloppy. He just wanted... To see Johnny die. Ah. Yeah. Before the murder was carried out, he approached several different people about killing Johnny, and all these people ended up telling on him. Delia, Caleb's widow, also played a part in this, (gasps) which surprised me. She was the one, so she suggested the spa day to Ashley to keep her away from the apartment so she would be gone all day. Oh, no. She was charged with racketeering conspiracy directed by Mike and bank fraud from falsifying documents when she applied for a bank loan in 2017. So a lot of people were involved in this. Aside from Mike, there's 12 co-defendants. All of them but two have slipped on Mike. Yeah. So the other 10 have either pleaded guilty, taken a plea deal, or have agreed to testify against him. Several of them are also admitting to all the other things Mike told them to do. And these are wild. Like, so he had a nightclub, right? He ordered them to release chemicals in the air at competing nightclubs <gasps> to burn the patrons' eyes so that they would run out and leave. That multiple, he did this to multiple nightclubs. Well, did you watch the Chippendales? No. The doc, or the, well, the, not the documentary the drama. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see it. Well, he was like, people were burned. He was having people burn down other people's nightclubs so they would come to his. So it happens. Allegedly. For sure. Yeah. He allegedly did. Well, Just I saying. mean, this guy did. Yeah. He's 
burning what? their eyes with chemicals because th- he had the termite company and he yes. was using fumes from that. Jesus. Multiple nightclubs. That sounds like a mesothelioma lawsuit. <laughs> God, I've I can't ever heard imagine. One. No. Jason Yokoyama has agreed to testify against him and this could be really damning because he was the nightclub manager and he assisted Mike in all this shady stuff like tax evasion and falsifying tax documents. He would also purchase guns for all of the associates, and he basically had a stockpile of guns for Mike. This was just a big operation. Yeah. The only two co-defendants not talking are his 36-year-old half-brother John, John Stansel, and daughter-in-law Delia, who's 29. So just family stood beside him, and everyone else is like, you don't nope, go, we're talking. We're you not. don't go against the family. Sure, but it's pretty bad having 10 people that are going to flip potentially. Yeah, yeah, potentially. So the three face a total of 22 counts spelled out in a third superseding indictment. All three are charged with participating in racketeering conspiracy that Mike controlled and directed. But Mike faces six separate charges related to Johnny's death, including conspiracy kidnapping, murder for hire, and conspiracy to commit murder in aid of racketeering. And two of these carry mandatory life upon conviction. Shit. So he's not facing a death penalty, but, I mean, two life sentences. So the trial started a couple of days ago on January 8th. <gasps> oh, yeah. just recently. That's how I found this case because I was just looking up stuff in Hawaii and I saw all these articles. But it's expected to last six months, the trial itself. Well, they've got to drag all this oh, shit yeah. out. They've said this is one of the most complex prosecutions in the U.S. because he's been involved in illegal activities since 98 and was, and was a major player in the drug trade. So it's like not just murder. It's all, a million things the they're things. trying to figure out. Mike has pleaded not guilty. His lawyers have described the idea of a so-called misty enterprise as fiction, and they say that some of the crimes committed by his associates were carried out on their own behalf and for other gangs. <laughs> what? But the charges against Mike portray him as the most powerful crime boss in Hawaii history. Hawaiian history. It's wild. So... I started reading all these articles written by Ian Wind, who writes for the Honolulu Civil Beat. He's been following this case. And it just seems like a movie. It's it sounds like... Six months of a trial. Those jurors. Oof. Yeah. Is it a jury trial? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oof. Yeah. Mm-mm. No thanks. So... I'll let you know in a year how this turns out. <laughs> when she has her second when we're baby. back in Hawaii, I'll let you know how that goes. But crazy. That's insane. Mm-hmm. You you always think of like like crime bosses and, yeah. and things like that being stereotypically in the East. Like the Absolutely. Northeast. Absolutely. Italian. First of all, in, that's in, offensive because I'm Italian. That's <laughs> Italian. I'm thinking of the Sopranos, you know? Well, you know. I, I would never. Jersey or New York or wherever I they would are. never have thought. Honolulu, yeah. It's Hawaii. Well, his boats were going back and forth from there to California. Well, that makes sense. Coke he's, and meth. He's in yeah. the drug trade. Yep, he's in the drug trade. What kills me, though, is Johnny didn't do anything. He attempted to steal the Rolex with Caleb. That's all he's guilty of doing. He did right. not kill Caleb. He was not driving as much as... He just wanted somebody to blame. He did. And he convinced everyone yeah. that, even his widow, that Johnny was driving. Nuts. But even then, it's like, let's say Johnny was driving. It wasn't which purposeful. He, wasn't. he didn't want to yeah. himself almost die yeah. and kill his best friend. It's just, he really went to great lengths to kill it's just like, man, it's dark. And that's what got all this other crap uncovered. Well, Anyways, what's your case about? Before we get started on my case, we got to take a break because mine's okay. like 35 pages. Oh, boy. But I'm going to tell you this now before the break, listeners. I hope you're not on an airplane. <laughs> if you are on an airplane, turn this Wait off. Wait until you're back home. Yeah, turn this off now. Because it may be very triggering. It may scare the shit out of you. It may give you major anxiety. And nobody wants to have a panic attack in the air. I've done it. It's not fun. 
Um, Luckily, I have no flights planned in the near future. This made me lose sleep because <gasps> it's very chilling. So, mm. but like I said, it's a long two stories. It's two different planes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, Oops. labor laws be damned. I'm going to go through this whole thing with you guys. <laughs> okay. So well, cut us off if okay. you're on a plane and we're going to take a break. We'll All be right back. All right. We're back. Ready for this long endeavor. It's, it's long. Aloha Airlines flight 243 was a scheduled Aloha Airlines flight between Hilo and Honolulu. On April 28, 1988, the Boeing 737 suffered extensive damage after an explosive decompression in flight caused part of the fuselage to break due to poor maintenance and metal fatigue. The plane was able to land safely at the airport in Maui. The one fatality was a flight attendant named Clarabelle Lansing, who was ejected from the airplane. Another 65 passengers and crew were also injured, ejected, like she was sucked out of the plane. Oh my gosh. Her body was never found. Really? Yes. Flight 243 departed from Hilo International Airport with five crew members and 90 passengers on board, headed towards Honolulu. Nothing unusual was noted during pre-departure inspection of the aircraft. They had already completed three round-trip flights from Honolulu to Hilo that day. Meteorological, that's not sound, that's not right. Sounded okay. To me. <laughs> I was like, that not sound right. <laughs> so the conditions were checked, but there was no advisories for anything due to weather like storms, mm-hmm. thunderstorms, rain. After a routine takeoff and ascent, the aircraft reached its normal flight altitude of 24,000 feet, went around 348, about 23 nautical miles south southeast of Maui. A section on the left side of the roof ruptured with a whooshing sound. The captain felt the aircraft roll to the left, then the right. The controls went loose. The first officer noticed a piece of gray insulation floating into the cockpit. The cockpit door had broken away and the captain could see blue sky where the first class ceiling had been. A large section of the roof had torn off, consisting of the entire top half of the aircraft skin, extending from just behind the cockpit to the forewing, which was about 18 feet. The sheer panic that those people were going through. I mean, if you could breathe, it would be difficult to breathe. You know, you had to grab those. Yeah, oxygen. Put them on your, yes. So the 58-year-old flight attendant, Clarabelle, was swept out of the airplane while standing near the fifth row seat. Like I said, her body was never found. She was a veteran flight attendant of 37 years at the time of wow. the incident. Yes. And I'm assuming they were over ocean. Yeah. In the middle, yeah. middle, middle of, of the, the ocean. ocean. Yeah. 24,000 oh feet up. Yes. Eight other people suffered serious injuries. <sighs> All of the passengers had been seated and wearing their seatbelts during the depressurization. Mm. Thank God. Well, I always think when they're obsessed with the seatbelt thing, when I'm on a plane, how ridiculous it is. Because I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, if we're crashing, we're going to die, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think about if a big part of this plane opens up and sucks us out. You will be sucked out. Now I won't complain as much about the seatbelt thing. Well, and here's my thing. People who fly with small children... You put them on your lap. Yeah. Yeah. They don't sit in seats. So. They're too small. Yeah. So obviously your seatbelt goes over both of you, but is that like strong enough to, Mm -hmm. I don't even want to think about it. First officer Tompkins was the pilot flying the plane at the time of the incident. The co-captain took over controls and performed an immediate emergency descent. The crew declared an emergency and diverted to, now here I go with these Hawaiian names, Kalui 
not correct, but you know what? We're going to roll with it. So they landed at the airport for an emergency landing. During the approach to the airport, the left engine failed, and the flight crew wasn't sure that the nose gear would even lower correctly. But they were able to land normally on runway two 13 minutes after. 13 minutes. That's a eternity. With the big hole in the plane. Mm-mm. And you saw someone just get sucked out. Oh, my God. So when they landed, the aircraft's emergency evacuation slides were deployed and passengers quickly evacuated the aircraft. 65 people, like I said, were reported injured, eight with serious injuries. And at the time, Maui had no plans in place for an emergency. What? The injured were taken to the hospital in tour vans driven by office personnel and mechanics. Oh, my gosh. The island only had two ambulances. Yeah. Air traffic control radioed and requested as many of their 15 passenger vans as they could spare to go to the airport, which was about three miles away, to transport the injured to the hospital. Wow. Yes. Triage was set up on the runway. Additional damages to the airplane included damage and dented horizontal stabilizers, both of which were struck by flying debris. Some of the metal debris had also struck the aircraft's vertical stabilizer, causing damage. Mm. The leading edge of both wings and both engines had also sustained damage. The aircraft was damaged beyond repair and was dismantled on site and written off. The piece of the fuselage blown off the aircraft was never found. Investigation by the NTSB concluded that the accident was caused by metal fatigue exacerbated by crevice corrosion. It was 19 years old, the aircraft, and operated in a coastal environment with Mm. exposure to salt and humidity, which caused it to corrode faster. I wonder what the norm is for how long a plane. If you are a pilot, let us know if you know anything about this. Oh my gosh. So during an interview, one passenger told investigators that she had noticed a crack in the fuselage when she boarded but didn't notify anybody. First of all. In the what? The fuselage. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know. If I saw a crack of any type. What's this? What's this why, crack? Is this supposed to be here? No cracks are supposed to be in no, the plane. anywhere. Yeah, no. The NTSB investigation determined that the quality of inspection and maintenance programs were deficient. Fuselage examinations were scheduled during the night, which made carrying out an adequate inspection of the aircraft's outer skin more difficult because it's fucking dark. Why are they doing it at night? Girl, the events of Flight 243 are featured on Hanging by a Thread, Season 3 episode of the Canadian TV series Mayday. So if you want to check that out and get diarrhea from being (laughs) nervous, it's called Air Emergency and Air Disasters in the U.S. and Air Crash Investigation in the U.K. and elsewhere around the world. Mm -hmm. So you can check that out. The flight was also included in Mayday Season 6, the Science of Disaster special titled Ripped Apart. And is also featured on season one, episode two of the TV show, Wild Planes Crash, in an episode called Breaking Point. I wonder how many of the survivors never flew again. Well, they're in Hawaii, so they have to get on a plane to get off of the island. Well, I mean, like, some of them, though, probably have not left, right? I mean, mean, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't want to fly again after we flew fucking Spirit or whatever it was. <laughs> Frontier. Frontier. Whatever. Same. Ugh. We hate you, Frontier. We sure do. <laughs> so here's my second. Mm. This is United Airlines Flight 811. Mm. This was a regularly scheduled airline flight from L.A. to Sydney, Australia, which had an intermediate stop at Honolulu and Auckland. On February 24th, 1989, one year yeah, I was about to say. after the one I just previously told you about, the Boeing 747, <sighs> serving the flight, experienced a cargo door failure uh. in flight shortly after leaving Honolulu. This resulted in explosive decompression 
blew out several rows of seats, killing nine passengers. So, oh my gosh, it sucked out these passengers to their death. <gasps> so the row against the window and the seat directly beside it got sucked out. Imagine being the person right next to the person the aisle sucked seat. out. I hate the aisle seat. I never want the oh. aisle seat until this. And now I'm like, can I just sit? Hmm. Yeah. Flight 811 took off from Honolulu International Airport at 1.52 local time with 337 passengers and 18 crew members on board. During the climb, the crew made pepper preparations to detour around a thunderstorm along the plane's track. The captain anticipated turbulence and told them to keep their seatbelts on, kept the keep seatbelt light on. The aircraft had been flying for 17 minutes as it was passing from 22,000 to 23,000 feet when the flight crew heard a loud thump, shook the whole plane. About a second and a half later, the forward cargo door blew off. It swung out with such force that it tore a hole in the fuselage. Pressure differentials and aerodynamic forces caused the cabin floor to cave in and 10 seats, G and H of rows 8 through 12, were ejected from the plane. This is giving me anxiety. I told you. I can visualize this so well. I think it's because you've seen so many movies of, you you know. Look at the pictures while I'm telling you the story. Pull your little phone out and Google it. All eight passengers seated in these locations were ejected from the aircraft, as was the passenger in seat 9F. Seats 8G and 12G were unoccupied. The gaping hole was left in the aircraft, through which a flight attendant named May in business class was almost blown out of. Another flight attendant hung onto the steps leading to the upper deck and was dangling from them when it occurred. Passengers and crew members saw her hanging to a seat leg and were able to pull her back inside the cabin, but she was severely injured. Oh my gosh. It's It looks like seats of a roller coaster yes. because it's ex- completely exposed. Well, the seats are gone. That's the seat that's left. Yeah, yeah the people in there. Oh my gosh. The pilots initially thought a bomb had gone off. Right, yeah. Because this was just two months, two months after Pan Am Flight 103 was blown up over Lockerbie, Scotland. I mean, it just happened. They began an emergency descent to reach an altitude where the air was breathable while also performing a 180-degree left turn to fly back to Mm -hmm. Honolulu. All this shit's going on in the air. These pilots have their shit together and know they have to land this plane. The explosion damage components of the onboard emergency oxygen supply system, because it's primarily located in the forward cargo sidewall, just by the the cargo door that blew off. The debris ejected from the aircraft during the explosive decompression damaged the number three and number four engines. Engine number three was experiencing heavy vibration and a low exhaust gas temperature and the engine pressure ratio, so the crew had to shut it down. So now they're down an engine. Oh my gosh. At 2.20, an emergency was declared and the crew began to dump fuel to reduce landing weight. The N1 reading of the engine number four soon fell to almost zero, so they shut it down because it started emitting flames. Some of the explosive ejected debris damaged the right wing and dented horizontal stabilizers on that side and damaged the vertical stabilizers. I I can't imagine what these pilots... We're going through. I don't even know why I'm looking at these pictures. These Girl, are terrifying. Horrible. Oh my gosh. To I'm looking at these pictures and to be the person who's right behind a gaping hole of a plane. Ugh. Where you just witnessed someone get sucked out. Literally sucked out. Mm-mm. So during the descent, 
the captain ordered flight engineer to tell the flight attendants to prepare for an emergency landing, but he was unable to contact them through the intercom because it wasn't working. He asked the captain for permission to go down to find out what was happening, and he agreed. Thomas saw the severe damage immediately upon opening the cockpit door. The aircraft's skin was peeled off in some areas of the upper deck, revealing frames. As he went down to the lower deck, the magnitude of the damage became very apparent. He saw the large hole in the side of the cabin. He returned to the cockpit and told them, you know, like the whole fucking side's blown out. And a large section of the fuselage is open at number one exit door. They thought this was definitely a bomb. And considering the damage, they knew it would be a very small margin to land it. As the airline neared the airport, the landing gear was extended. The flaps could only be partially deployed because of all the damage, which it also required a higher than normal landing speed at around 190 to 220 knots, which is about 220 to 230 miles an hour to land. Oh my gosh. The captain was able to bring the aircraft to a halt without overrunning the runway, which was a huge fear of theirs. So about 14 minutes had elapsed since the emergency was declared and the time that they landed, which doesn't sound like a long time, but is an eternity. Oh, I'm sure. All the remaining passengers and flight attendants exited the aircraft in less than 45 seconds. Wow. Shit. They were like, you wouldn't have to tell me twice. Get me the fuck off this Mm -hmm. plane. Every flight attendant suffered some injury during the evacuation, ranging from scratches to a dislocated shoulder. Despite extensive air and sea searches, no remains of the non-victims in flight were found at sea, but multiple body fragments and pieces of clothing were found in the number three engine. Oh my gosh. Indicating that at least one victim that was ejected from the fuselage was ingested by the engine. But they don't know if it was one or more. I mean, I don't even know what would be worse. At I mean, least it was over. Terrible, quick, yeah. But it's like, would you rather fall to your death or be sucked in to the engine like a human food processor? I think that I do too because it's fast. It's awful, but like to fall and well, I would have a fucking heart attack oh immediately and be dead. Anyways, mm. you can't breathe up there. You would pass out. I would but hope to pass out. That would my be, hands are sweating even talking about this, and I'm afraid of heights. Well, heights are the thought of falling from a plane, which is probably what caused that engine to. Ugh. But if you look at the pictures, which we'll post all this mm-hmm. on social media, um, and you see like the plane layout yeah. and where this part broke apart and flew like mm-hmm. backwards. It's almost like the whole piece that broke off had to go through that engine. Yeah. It's not better, but. So the NTSB immediately commenced an investigation into the accident. An extensive air search through the ocean Mm. failed to locate the cargo door. They were not able to inspect it. So they proceeded with this investigation and issued the final report on April 16th of 90. And based on the evidence available. They attributed the cargo door malfunction to damage and ground crew mishandling. So human error, like they didn't shut it properly. Even worse to me. The NTSB operated from an assumption that a properly latched and locked 747 cargo door could not open during flight. Just a freaking cargo door. Someone didn't close a door. Never thought I would have to worry about this. I didn't either. So someone had one job. (laughs) Listen. Oh, so there's no reasonable means by which the door, which the door locking and latching mechanism could be opened Mm -hmm. mechanically in flight from a properly closed and locked position. If the lock sectors were in the proper condition and were properly situated over the closed Mm -hmm. latch, the lock sectors had sufficient strength to prevent vibration 
that would cause it to open. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if the plane's shaking, it's not going to jimmy itself to where it can open. There are two possible means that the cargo door could open while in flight. Either the latch mechanisms were forced open electronically through like a lock sector, like somebody did it, or the door was not properly latched and locked before departure, which is what they're saying happened. And the door opened when pressurization loads reached to the point where they couldn't hold. So the NTSB learned that in 47-13U's case, the aircraft had experienced intermittent malfunction of its cargo door in the months prior to the accident. So this is another plane. Based on this information, they concluded that these malfunctions had damaged the door and that's what caused it to blow open, basically. So human error by the ground crew. Right. They also faulted the airline for improper maintenance and inspection and inspection due to its failure to identify this. So um, they concluded that the accident was preventable, human error, and not a problem inherent of the design or function of the cargo door. So they're saying that one person didn't check the box and catastrophe happened. Man, I feel like if human error error is that easy in this case. Make another safe. It gets better. Oh, I don't know. So on September 26th and October 1st of 1990, two halves of Flight 811's cargo doors were recovered by a deep sea sub from the Pacific Ocean 14,000 feet beneath the surface. The cargo door had fractured lengthwise across the center Recovery crews reported that no other debris or evidence of human remains were discovered. Hmm. So NTSB then inspects the cargo door and determines that the condition of the locking mechanism did not support the original conclusion. So they were wrong. Oh. Yes. In 1991, an incident occurred at New York's JFK airport involving a malfunctioning of a United Airlines Boeing 747 cargo door. At the time, the United Airlines maintenance staff was investigating the cause of a circuit breaker trip on the plane. In the process of diagnosing the cause, an inadvertent operation of the electric door latch caused the cargo door to open spontaneously. So basically... If this wire and this wire touch, it flies open without anybody touching it. No matter where you are, if you're in the air, if you're loaded down with passengers, or you're on the ground, if this and this happen just right, it short circuits it and blows the door open. So an inspection of the door's electrical wiring discovered insulation breaches and isolating certain electrical wires allowed it to function normally. So... That's terrifying. You designed that. That is terrifying. So basically it appears that in this case, a short circuit of the wires caused the rotation of the latch clamps, which forced the locking sectors to unlock midair and enabled the pressure differential and aerodynamic forces to blow the door off the fuselage, ripping away the hinge, cabin floor, and the side fuselage. A short in wiring cause this. If you have a flight soon, I'm so sorry. I told you, I'm sorry. I told you to turn it off. I told you to turn it off. So get this. The aircraft is repaired, re-registered as N47-24U in 1989 and returned to service. Repaired? And returned to service. that's called retire. Retire that. U.S. Whoops. With United Airlines in 1990 and 97- it was registered with Air Dubai as a C5 FBS, and after the airline's collapse, it was abandoned in an um, Plattsburgh International Airport 2004. The aircraft was scraped. So, they just put it right back in the air after they patched the hole. That is absurd. Yeah, so it's in a junkyard somewhere, or somebody bought it and turned it into a really cool Airbnb. That That's what should have happened in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, an Airbnb. So if you, <laughs> That's dark. if you haven't been freaked out enough, oh my. you can watch the file footage of this and eyewitness accounts 
and Survivor Stories. Ugh. It's featured on Unlocking Disaster, Season 1, first episode of the TV series Mayday, which include, like I said, interviews with survivors and a dramatization of the accident. Mm. The flight is also featured on Mayday Season 6, titled Ripped Apart, and featured on Season 1, Episode 2 of the TV show Why Planes Crash. I'm already a nervous liar. I'm not watching any of <laughs> This right here is shit that I never knew I needed to worry about. Me either. This is the most terrifying thing. Ugh. And something like this just happened. It's in the yeah, news on Alaskan Airlines. Timely. I sent you a thing on Instagram about it. Yeah, did you pick this case before or after? Way before. This oh was my done. Gosh. This was done like oops. This was done like in December. Oh yes, weird. Way before. But this one that just happened was the window and side panel blew mm-hmm. off. Thank it was much smaller in comparison by far. But, but still, thank yeah. God no one was sitting in that seat. Uh, it's Like I said, it's all over the news right now. Um, they're saying United Airlines found bolts on the door or plugs off of several 737s, Max 9s. Hmm. So they're not confirming how many planes that they found these loose bolts on. But do you remember in 2018, that Southwest flight flying from New York to Dallas, that passenger died after being partially sucked out the window. Do you remember when that happened? So they, the engine blew and part of the metal from the engine hit her window, shattered it sucked her out and the other passengers jumped up and were like pulling her back in seven other people were injured she was the only one that died oh my god they had to find something to plug the fucking hole so she ended up flying out of the window even she flew partially out they were able to grab her and pull her back in it would have sucked her out she still died she I didn't see, I didn't dive too much into uh-huh. like her cause of death, but they were covered in blood when they were pulling her back in. But you got to think if that metal hit that window yeah, and shattered it, yeah. it probably hit her in the face or head. It was probably pretty extreme. She was probably Ugh. honestly dead before they, before yeah. it sucked her out. If not, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyways, she died. Seven other people were injured. Um, they had to plug the whole part of the engine fell part of the, blade was flung and that's what broke the window oh my god it just really makes me never want to sit by a window ever again well just anywhere i mean the middle oh man. also can we just get high speed rails in the u.s like i don't know why we're so fucking behind like the whole world has high speed rails those kind of freak me out too I would because r- they're so fast well yeah but also you're not falling thirty thousand feet so anyways that's terrifying and it's Interesting because car crashes are way more common. But me, myself included, I'm way more afraid of plane crashes, even though oh, it's, they're so. Much, I don't want to. Uh, well, because the the heights. And, I would expect. I, don't know. I would expect my airplane mm. to be much safer and inspected more regularly than my vehicle. I'm yeah, sorry. That's true. It's just really. Freaky. It's the fall. It's the. Yeah. It's that's what's scary. Yeah. Ugh. Um, I climbed Pinnacle this weekend. Oh, switching gears. That's awesome. Speaking of heights, that is a mountain near us. It is a mountain near us. In and case you're wondering, went up the hard side. Oh, that is intense. That's just like rocky too. It's very you're rocky. Like a mountain goat. I was literally like a mountain goat. <laughs> I, my upper body, oh. like my armpits and back, were killing That's me extreme. the next day. It was tough. One time I went with Charlie and I had to help like lift him up rocks because Did he you was up the too hard? short. Yeah. I can't believe you took him. Somebody else no, had their was, dog there. He was better at it Ugh. than me, but like some parts he was too short to jump. It was crazy. I haven't done that in years. It That's impressive. Was Did you take Max? No. I was like, yeah. no, no, no. I, Max has climbed it several times, mm-hmm. but we've always went up the easy side. Mm-hmm. So we did it's that. We, yeah, it wasn't bad. That's awesome. Did you do anything fun this weekend besides lose sleep and nurse no, a baby? That's it. Did you watch anything? Uh, 
I, it's all a blur. <laughs> it's all a blur. I went to Target by myself on uh, Sunday for Did you feel a like little you bit. Were lost. It was nice. I just needed to get out of the house. I'm, That's nice. I hadn't left the house in six weeks, other than appointments. Yeah, I was like, I'm free. <laughs> Never coming back. Never no, I'm coming just back. <laughs> I watched 1408, which is a blast from the past. Oh, I love that movie. So I forgot how What's good it was. John Cusack? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's And Samuel L. Jackson. I saw that in theaters back in the day. It was good. Yeah, that was a good movie. And then... I forgot um, the plot, but I liked it. Well, you should watch it when you're up tonight and you can't sleep. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, Aliens in the Mall. Oh, yeah. Have you... Because you told me that you yeah, were going to... That's one of your wackies. That's one of my wackies this week. Have you... So you know what's happened. What do you think? I don't think it's aliens in the I swear to God. I'm sick of everybody. <laughs> I don't think it's sick aliens. Of everybody. So if you haven't seen this and you don't know what we're talking <sighs> about, apparently police said that there were a bunch of teens fighting at a mall in mm-hmm. Miami. Google it. It's too long to talk about. Maybe Lacey I'll can talk about Wednesday it. She can tell you more about it on Wednesday. Look it up. Crazy. Yeah. I, of course, think. This is a cover-up. This is a cover-up. This is aliens. We all know where I stand on this. Oh, my goodness. Aliens are your people. They're shopping at Dillard's in Park Plaza, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they work there. I don't know. Max drew me a picture of an alien because I was telling him this story. Oh. So he he loves to draw, and he drew me a picture mm-hmm. of this alien, and I'm going to show you a picture. We'll have to put it on our socials because I'm like, I'm going to get this little I'm going to get this alien tattooed on me. What? Just a little win of him. But I think it's the cutest thing ever. I don't know. I love it so much. I love that he um, fosters his mother's <laughs> alien That's alien so addiction. It's oh very God. sweet. Do you have anything new? Anything in our... We Oh, we have new patrons. Oh, well, hell, yeah, tell that's us. that's new. So we have Cecilia T. from Arkansas. Cutest name ever. I was about to say, I love that name. And based on her city, I was like, do I know her? I don't think I've ever met a Cecilia, but I'm not going to out her city. Don't out her but city. But I'm like, wait. <laughs> Hi, Cecilia. Hi, Cecilia. Thank you. And we have Linda B. And not sure where she's from, but thank you, Linda. Thanks, Linda. I want some stickers. DM us and we'll send you some. We should start guessing where the people that don't have the addresses listed are from. I'm going to say Oklahoma. I'm going to say Illinois. Okay. Oh, that's an interesting one. Linda, I'm where are you thinking. from? <laughs> Tell us, Linda. We need some more people from Illinois. She's going to be like Arkansas. <laughs> oh, and Kelly B. heard you loud and clear last week, and she bought us some cocktails. <gasps> she said, enjoy a welcome back drink. Uh, Thank yeah. you, Kelly. Yeah, Hello. we are. Well, Ashley is. I'm enjoying a Diet Coke. I have to pump right after you. <laughs> I have to, like, really plan out my cocktails. <laughs> Here, look at Max's alien. Oh, that's cute. That is cute. What does it say? We're back, baby. (laughs) (laughs) We're back, baby. We're back, baby. We never left. We never left. We've been here. That is hilarious. Well, we hope you enjoyed our terrifying tales of flights and... Sorry if you're flying soon. And um, beach mobsters. (laughs) I traumatized them with labor last week. You traumatized them with flights this week. Listen. We got some DMs that were like, oh my God, you're, I'd never want to have children. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Crazy. Listen, I'm just keeping it honest. I'm not adding in the fluff. I feel like I've heard too much fluff and I don't know. I'm just going to be real with you. Hey, I was real with you. I told you. <laughs> told you. I have my six week check up tomorrow and i'm scared why because i don't want them poking around down there oh they're gonna look i'm at not it. ready i'm they like are. no just stay away from nope. this i'm still not ready no, let's take a look that's <laughs> it'll be so it's a teaching hospital so it's like there'll be five people there's like a whole menagerie of people probably probably that girl from our wacky wednesday that told me 40 year old woman she's probably she's probably a nursing student anytime anyone's looking at anything on me it's like a fleet of students and residents and nurses and PAs. Do you care, though, at this point? No. No. Told you. Yeah. Your modesty's gone. Oh, now. it really was. I mean, when they were looking at my stitches, it was a nurse and then a PA student. She's like, I have this PA student. Do you mind if he... I'm like, I don't care. And I just don't flip, flip over. I'm like, 
He might as well look at it. I don't know. Whatever. He's going to have to see stitches from somebody. Oh, my gosh. So I'll let you know how that goes. And yeah. I, I'll be bringing Andres with me. So he'll oh be crying. Lord. I'll be crying. Everyone's crying. Everyone's crying. You're naked. <laughs> I'm naked. <laughs> oh, anyway. Next week we are in West Virginia. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing yet, but oh I'll figure boy. it out. West Virginia. I just think of that cat meme wearing the cowboy hat. You know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, I do. I do. West Virginia. Oh, All right, now we, got, we gotta go before Lacey starts singing. Yeah, Goodbye. Now. Bye. <laughs>